Hello and welcome back listeners to the 18th episode of the Anxiety Book Club. I'm very excited to be talking this month with Dr. Sally Winston. We'll be talking about one of her three books that she co-authored. This one's called Needing to Know for Sure, a CBT-based guide to overcoming compulsive checking and reassurance seeking. And who is Dr. Winston? She is a regionally and nationally recognized um, expert in the treatment of OCD and anxiety disorders and has been for, for over 40 years. She is the co-founder of the Anxiety and Stress Disorders Institute of Maryland, um, has served as chair of the Clinical Advisory Board of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, and as mentioned, is the co-author of, of three of these books, which um, Dr. Dr. Winston or, or Sally was just telling me that this is actually... Um, part of a series. Uh, do you want to say more about that or, or correct uh, your biography if I get got any of that wrong? Well, the bio- biography sounds fine. It's That's actually me. Um, Dr. Marty Seif and I wrote uh, our writers together. We're co-authors of most everything we write. <clears throat> and yes, uh, Needing to Know for Sure is the second of a three-part series. We are in the middle of writing the third part. Um, so that's not available yet. The first one is called Overcoming Unwanted Intrusive Thoughts. And I was just saying to Joshua that um, to our knowledge, and we have no control over this, but it has apparently been translated into eight or nine languages already, the, the first of the series. Um, the second one is the Needing to Know for Sure. And the third one, which we're writing right now, is called an Overcoming Anticipatory Anxiety. And that should be out within the year. Well, that's really exciting. And that topic of anticipatory anxiety, which you mentioned in the book, is definitely something I want to explore. Um, but I, I think I first I just want to get a scope of the problem here. If this book is being, or the, the first part of the trilogy is being translated into nine different languages, sounds like people the world over are, are dealing with uh, some, some of these kinds of issues. Well, I you know, I... I think that's true. When I was in graduate school in, uh, never mind, a very long time ago, um, we were told that obsessive compulsive disorder was extremely rare and we would probably never see a case of it. Um, and that, and furthermore, that it was more or less untreatable. And two cases of uh, Freud's that uh, were made famous um, were OCD cases. Um, what we discovered is that, of course, OCD is actually very common and all over the world. I think um, we are all biologically the same creatures, and I think we all can have a predisposition to have a sticky mind. Mm. And that runs in families, and I think it's all over the world. And so what we're trying to do is just reach as many people as we can because all of the typical things one might do to try to deal with unwanted intrusive thoughts or the need to know for sure, those things tend to backfire. And so people suffer with these problems for their whole lives. And so we're trying to reach as many people as we can. Yeah, well, I really appreciate the work you guys are doing because 
I know this kind of, um, you know, evidence-based, you know, therapeutic advice and others like it have definitely brought a lot of um, uh, relief to, to me personally. And, you know, by coming on this podcast, but moreover, you know, writing these books and, and, you know, being a doctor for so long, um, I'm sure, you know, your (laughs) society probably owes you a debt. You can know where you're going in the afterlife, I guess. (laughs) Well, every once in a while, like three or four or five times a week, we either get a review on Amazon or we get a note from someone saying this book changed my life. So that is plenty of reward. Um, We are, we're very excited about the impact that the books are having. One thing I noticed from reading the book, and I might have been wrong, but I feel like the phrase obsessive obsessive compulsive disorder doesn't appear that much in this book. It doesn't appear in the first book either. And that's quite deliberate. I mean, it does appear in a few places, but it's not in the title and it's not prominent. And the reason for that is that most people who have unwanted intrusive thoughts or who have compulsive reassurance seeking don't think of themselves as having OCD because the what OCD is in the general public press is things like lots of hand washing or um, being very precise about details or other other ways of um, exp- uh, in which OCD expresses itself. And most of the people who have OCD don't know they have OCD. So we, you know, if you if you know you have OCD, then you can go look for books on OCD. But what we wanted to do, and what we're continuing to do, is have our books have titles that people might identify with without knowing that that's what's going on. Um, and o- OCD and generalized anxiety disorder, in our viewpoint, um, are. Um, are so closely related to each other that they're basically the same thing. And so we just want people to find our books. So that's why, that's why we didn't put OCD in the title. Yeah, that's actually really, really interesting. I guess on the one hand, you maybe miss some of the readers who put the word OCD into the search box, although maybe it comes up anyways. But on the other hand, you get a bunch of people who either don't know that they what they have or haven't been diagnosed or also maybe sort of just bristle at the label. Yes, exactly. Right. And there's stigma associated, unfortunately. And we just we just wanted to get as many people as possible to understand that not only is this not an untreatable condition, it's very treatable, very workable once you understand what's going on. So the point of these books is to explain everything. It's the same as we do when we're actually seeing patients. We just explain everything. We answer questions. What we're not doing is sitting and saying, how do you feel about that? We are explaining things so that people understand the rationale for what needs to be different. Um, and and what we understand and what we've seen over and over again is that once people get what's going on, understand how it comes about, what they're doing that's keeping it going, um, then then the, the road to recovery is already halfway there. Because we're not looking at anything involving why. We, it's not about why. It's about how and what the way to get better is to interrupt what you're doing that's keeping it going. And that's that's the basis of the books, is to 
is to let people see the process that goes on in their mind that actually keeps their mind sticky, keeps their thoughts coming back, keeps their need for seeking reassurance or checking, keep what it is that gives that fuel and to take away the fuel. Sure. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Maybe we should present the the main issue here, which in the book is called the reassurance trap. And on pages two and three, the introduction, there's a sort of checklist for the reader to find out whether or not they sometimes find themselves in these traps. So I'll just read the ones where I said yes to (laughs) so that I was able to identify myself as being sometimes caught in the reassurance trap. And one was, are there areas or issues in your life where you need to know, quote, for sure, does uncertainty about these things drive you crazy? Okay, I answered yes to that. Um, Do doubts take over? Are you unable to accept or overlook them? Yes to that one. Are you subject to endless internal debates that never resolve? Yes. And then here's a good one. (laughs) Do you experience paralysis over decisions because no amount of reassurance or checking is enough? So there's about a dozen others uh, here that, you know, fortunately I wasn't uh, obliged to answer affirmatively, but um, I think I, I checked the box well enough. Mm-hmm. You do? I say so. I mean, I've, I've been in treatment and, um, you know, have been working on similar things for a long time. So I, uh, I'm familiar with the trap, but it was stated so, I don't know, it was so accessible in this book, what exactly was going on. And there's also lots of like wisdom in here. You know, it's like, because I think if you talk to uh, maybe most practitioners or specialists or even people who think they know about anxiety and OCD, they'll give you the general wisdom. But then there's things in here uh, that I want to get to at some point, like this notion of like search and destroy and these reassurance coupons that you can cash in that just feel like they came from, you know, a lifetime of experience of, you know, practically trying to treat this instead of just kind of administering the the wisdom. Thank you for that. I, I think what we've tried to do is to go beyond the obvious. I mean, when somebody is um, hammering on someone else for reassurance or when they're checking if the stove is turned off over and over and over again, they know that that's what they're doing. And they know that somehow or other, that's not a good idea. But so much of what people do when they struggle with doubt or uncertainty or wanting to know something for sure is, is subtle. And so subtle that you don't even realize necessarily that that's the fuel that's keeping the doubting going. There, you know, when when we a lot of what gets called self-talk in many kinds of therapy is actually covert forms of self-reassurance. Hmm. And they actually backfire. For instance, um, something like what is the likelihood that that bad thing is going to happen? You know, which is a common thing that you might hear in therapy. You might say, yes, you know, you come in with something that's highly unlikely, like what if this spot on my arm is cancer? And your your therapist may say to you, what's the likelihood that that's going to happen? And then you say back, well, I know it's very unlikely and then within three seconds, there's a part of you that's saying, yes, but what about in my case? Or what if it's 99% unlikely, but what about my 1%? And 
and you argue with that and you try to reassure yourself with no, it's unlikely, and then comes back the yes, but, and you go back and forth and back and forth internally. So a lot of the things that are that people are taught, even in therapy and in some of the regular self-help books, they actually backfire. Um, because there's subtle, subtle reassurance in there. And you can seek, you know, you can seek what we call empty reassurance almost automatically. You, On your way out the door, you may say something like, things are going to be fine, right? And the other person says, sure. And unfortunately, that's also fuel for continuing to be uncomfortable with uncertainty and needing to feed the monster, you know, that the book is full of those kinds of little details. Search and Destroy is definitely one of those things where you have to sort of go through your your day-to-day experience and try to root out the little subtle things that you're doing to try and get reassurance, like looking at someone's face to see if they might possibly be upset with you, even though they're way too polite to tell you. But maybe if you look carefully, you can see that they're really okay with you or that kind of thing where you never say anything out loud, but you are you are feeding your worried voice. One of the things that we do in the book is we we try to bring those internal voices forward. So there, there are three characters that are in all three of the books and they're, they're voices that are inside our head. And I don't mean like, you know, in a, in a crazy way. I and mean, we all are aware that, that we speak to ourselves in many parts. And one of the parts is, uh, is a, uh, worried voice, which is the voice of what if and, and uh, yes, but and, and the voice of imagination, uh, all of which there's way too much of. And uh, the second is called false comfort. And false comfort is everything that you do inside your head or outside your head to try and establish a feeling of certainty. So it could be, why don't you avoid? Why don't you check on this? Why don't you ask somebody? Um, that couldn't possibly be true, right? All those kinds of statements that are self-reassurance or reassurance-seeking behaviors. And then the third voice is wise mind, which actually knows how to handle uncertainty. Yeah, wise mind is my favorite character. <laughs> Everybody's. Yeah, I, I like the dialogue, and I'm actually uh, pretty excited to meet them again um, when I look at the other books. There's so much here, you know, and you've already been such a good podcast guest, because the best guests are the ones that kind of just tell you what the book is about, and I don't really even have to do much question answering. You've already started unpacking so many of the important concepts here. But there's there's a few things that you brought up that I think are interesting that I didn't think to ask, but sort of outside of the scope of the book, but in the way that you were talking about how some therapy, you know, maybe can backfire because there's this covert uh, assurance seeking that's taking place. I know you need to be like, uh, you know, collegial and, and, and nice to the other people in your field, but is there any sense in which there's like, like some numbers of, or thousands or dozens of people sitting in therapy every day and they're just not getting the right treatment because um, they're kind of co co. What is it? Co reassuring each other. Co compulsing. That's a a concept that we came up with, which is where the therapist is kind of providing 
more false comfort, might be a little more creative, or might be a little more, you know, might might seem like it's coming out of the empirical literature, but it's it's really just more reassurance. Or the, the therapist may be doing things like exploring why something happened in the hope that if you figure that out, that you will feel more sure or get better or stop having the symptoms. And there are an awful lot of people in therapy who are not getting better. Yes, Joshua, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, that's, it's too bad to hear that. Um, but hopefully, I don't know, through the popularization of maybe like organizations like the International OCD Foundation or other professional groups? Do you think that's changing? Well, certainly if you go to see somebody who's in the IOCDF, um, you're going to have a much higher chance of, of running into someone who's going to be able to explain to you what's going on and be helpful. There's also other organizations, ABCT and um, the ADAA, the Anxiety and Depression Association, where people are exchanging up-to-date information about therapy um, and how to do um, helpful work with people of all ages and people with anxiety disorders and OCD and related conditions. So the people who are, are in these organizations are exchanging information all the time and trying to help each other figure out how to be more helpful. So those are therapists who are registered in those organizations are sort of a, a better place to start than anybody who just says they're a therapist. Mm -hmm. So I think just to make this clear, I want to just, you know, provide an example. So, and I've had good therapists or, or maybe the, the word good is not right, but therapists that understand my condition and understand what the, the right treatment for it. So if I, if I go into my, um, OCD therapist and I tell them I'm having a doubt about something, um, the right response in, in some sense for at least what I suffer from, which is um, compulsive checking and reassurance seeking is, is you know, saying something like maybe or, um, you know, it's possible that that will happen. Whereas the wrong advice is when you walk into a therapist's office and instead of leaving open the possibility that your doubts are real, they try to assure you um, exactly. perhaps that they're not. Right. And, and it's not only just to reinforce the, I mean, the, the good therapy is not only just to reinforce uh, maybe and, and refuse to provide the reassurance, but to also work on whatever it is you're doing, which is keeping that need for certainty alive and keeping you stuck in the looping round and round stuff that's going on in your head so that you can, you can stand back from it. So it, the, the first response that I would have if you came into my office and said, I'm having a doubt about whatever, doesn't matter the topic, I would say something like, terrific, here's a chance for us to practice, mm. right? It wouldn't be like, oh my goodness, well, what can we do about this? How can we get rid of those thoughts? It's more a matter of, okay, here we go. This is good news. We've got a perfect example here of a stuck thought and, and uh, you at this point know well enough that seeking certainty is an impossibility. You're not going to get it. So let's take a look at what you're doing that's getting in your own way and that's fueling those doubts so that they're hammering at you. Because doubts when you have this kind of condition are not just 
something that pop up once in a while. They they hammer at you. They they have a push to them. They seem like they are urgent, and you have to do something about it. And the idea of not doing anything about it just seems like it, like a really stupid idea, unless you understand that the fuel that keeps you miserable are a number of things. One of them is that it is a basic principle of the mind, which is that is about effort. Um, we call it paradoxical effort. In, in the outside world, if, if you want something to happen, you do something. If I want this table to be, to be over there, I move it. I pick it up and I move it. Or I get some people who are stronger than me to come over and pick it up and move it. And I put in effort. And effort gets me what I want. Hmm. But in the inside world, effort works backwards. The harder you try not to think something, the harder you try not to feel something, the more you struggle with something that's in your awareness, whether it's a sensation, a thought, a memory, uh, you know, any of that. If you push on it, if you struggle with it, if you argue with it, if you analyze it, if you, if you plan around it, if you do anything to try to fix it or get it to stop, it gets stronger. That's the paradox. And so any therapy that, or anything that you are using as a technique to try to make your symptom or your thought or your, your doubt go away, if you're doing it with an effort to get it accomplished, it will backfire. And that's such a basic thing that is not taught to people. Um, so that it is not a matter of doing a technique to fix it. It's a matter of you might as well be this way while you don't do anything to fix it. So it's while your mind is doing this stuff that's unpleasant, you might as well listen to the radio. As opposed to maybe if I turn on the radio, I can get myself to stop thinking that. Do you see the difference? It's a subtle distinction. I've thought about it before, the difference between, I guess, distraction and I guess the, the F part of their, your DEF acronym, the floating. Yes. Um, one is about, I hate this thought. I can't stand it. It feels unsafe. I want to think about something else. And the other one was like, I really like <laughs> TV shows and now is the perfect time to watch one. Right. Well, you know, if you want to use a TV analogy, here's one. So you wake up in the morning and um, your house has, uh, has had a magic transformation overnight and there's an extra room. And the room is empty except that there's a, a massive flat screen TV in, on, on one wall in this room. And it's flat against the wall. There's no plug available. There's no remote, nothing. There are no dials. And the TV is on. And it's on the obsessive doubt channel. <laughs> and it's just playing and you can't turn it off and there's nothing you can do about it well you have a couple of choices you can go in the next room and do whatever you need to be doing you know get dressed do the dishes brush your teeth and you can kind of hear it but you go about your day 
Or you can spend your entire day running in and out of the new room, trying to figure out how to turn it off. It's always on. You keep hoping maybe it's turned off, so then you run back in to see if it's turned off and it isn't, it's still on. And you can spend, you can waste your whole day that way. Or you can just decide to go about your day while it's still on. And it's that attitude that's needed. You need to change your relationship with your worries, with your doubts, with the thoughts that you don't want to be having. Instead of having them bully you, you have to go about your day whether they're there or not. Mm -hmm. And when they really don't matter to you anymore, you're done. Because then you don't anticipate them, you don't worry about them, they can't bully you, they can't make you feel bad about yourself, you're not ashamed. They're just, you know, if they come, they come. If they don't come, they don't come. But they don't run your life anymore. And if you don't dread them, if you don't have anticipatory anxiety about them, they actually start fading away. But you can't get at them directly, only indirectly. Yeah, that's a great metaphor. I'd never heard that before. And it's a it's a pretty good one for how the mind works, it always being on and it's hard to turn it off. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, I was digging up, looking through my email inboxes because I knew I had a, a good one to share for this conversation. So when you're in the uncertainty trap, um, is that what we call it? Reassurance, reassurance trap. Yeah, the, when you're in the reassurance trap, uh, you or I might do a number of things to make yourself feel temporarily better. But unfortunately, as as you've just stated, paradoxically, that makes them stick around for longer or just be with you for longer, more of your life. And one of the ways that you might seemingly rationally get rid of them for a short while is to ask friends, you know, or family like, hey, I'm thinking about this college major. Do you think it's good? You know, you're in this profession. You took this major. Was it good for you? And, and not stopping then, but, you know, crowdsourcing, as I used to say, you know, crowdsourcing all of your life's decisions and just asking for more and more advice in the, in the hopes, I think, at least in my case, that at some point, some feeling would, would just rest itself upon your head, like a, a like sort of like a warm embrace and say, okay, we got the feeling of 100% certainty and confidence. Now we can finally make this choice. Right. Um, the bad news is, I guess in all cases or almost all cases, at least for people like me, and I guess for all the other people who speak those, you know, eight other languages, <laughs> uh, that feeling of certainty or a hundred percent confidence, it just seems to not arrive. Well, let's, let's be clear that certainty is in fact a feeling. It's not a fact. And if you're clear about that, then you realize that searching for it, by trying to get more facts isn't going to happen. Um, it, it, you know, I mean, we're not, we don't have certainty in real certainty about anything. I mean, just think for a moment about somebody you love right now. And um, can you, can you think about them for a moment? And now yeah. I'm going to ask you a question. Is that person alive right now? Yeah, I hope so. But but yeah, I don't know for sure. We, we don't know for sure. And I noticed you didn't just grab your cell phone and call them. You're, you have pretty much a feeling of, yeah, 
but you don't actually know. And that's not trivial. That's somebody really, that's a really important fact. Mm. <laughs> and yet you're willing to go with good enough certainty or it's, you know, it's a feeling you have. But what happens is that people seek certainty when they have a thought um, that arrives with a, with, a, with a jolt with it. Now, it, this is what we call an intrusive, unwanted thought. It, it shows up and it, it's not usually thoughts about chairs. It's thoughts about something awful. And, you, and it, it arrives and it goes, oh, my God. And the, the feeling that comes with it makes it seem like it's important. And then you launch on an effort to answer the thought or get certain about the fact that it didn't happen or it couldn't happen or it wouldn't happen. And then you, you launch into this search for certainty. And, and the more that you go after it, the less you feel it. Um, ask There's two different, just to go back to your question about you know crowdsourcing, there's two different kinds of reassurance. There is something called productive reassurance. I mean, everybody gets productive reassurance at various times. I mean, if I, if I think to myself, whoa, did I pay my utility bill? And then I check to see if I paid my utility bill and it says I did, um, and I, then I'm done with it, that's productive reassurance. Or if I say to a friend, you know, do you, do you like this hat? And they say, uh, yeah, sure, I really like it. And I, okay, fine. Productive reassurance is reassurance that that stops the looping. It's just done. You're you're finished with it. It's not important. It it gives you an action plan, like okay, I'll keep the hat, or um, I don't have to now check my checkbook and then see if my computer was really on or whether I really saw what I thought I saw when I looked it up on my computer or whether there's some other way in which it could possibly be registering wrong and I really haven't paid my bill. Or maybe that was last month's bill that I looked at, I better check again. So productive reassurance is kind of the period at the end of the sentence. You kind of have that feeling that you're talking about. It's like good enough. And then you have an action plan or an inaction plan. There's nothing I need to do, or I'm gonna do this, and then you're done. So ordinary productive reassurance isn't something you have to never have. But unproductive reassurance where you get trapped is when it keeps looping. And I was giving an example of looping when I was just talking before, where you go, yes, but, or you go back with another attempt to get a little more reassurance, or you, you don't feel reassured enough, and you just keep going round and round and round. And that's what has to stop, because that's the thing that feeds the stickiness of those doubts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and if you if you find yourself in the position of being a reassurance seeker, especially of unproductive reassurance, it can be annoying to your friends. Or you could feel ashamed. So I have an email from a friend of mine from college, and it, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole email, but this is the best sentence I took out of there. It said, to be honest, a little annoyed to only hear from you when you want advice. Uh -huh. So that was back in 2012. And, and at the time, you know, I hadn't met a good therapist. And so I thought like what I was doing was not just rational, but sort of the right thing to do in order to, you know, maximally 
um, perfect my decisions. But mm-hmm. of course, you know, it's just part and parcel of this um, unfortunately paradoxical effort. Right. Um, so something I wanted to ask you about, which I've noticed in myself is I don't do much of the reassurance seeking outwardly much, but I found that it, it's, it's in a sneaky sort of way, it's transitioned into a bit of rumination. Whereas there's not an external person that I'll go and talk to and ask or, you know, crowdsource, but I'll ping pong the thought back and forth in my head as if there were more people to, you know, play with in there. Whereas in Mm -hmm. fact, it's just me and then me and then me again. Have you ever encountered that? Well, that's pretty much what the, what this is all about is that the the ruminations are your attempts to make yourself feel better, and the ruminations are worried are um, false comfort. So that if you think if you can analyze it enough that you can get it to go away, or you can feel sure, or if you let's say you decide that you're going to have a conversation with someone, then you make a script for every possible thing that they could say so that then you'd have the right thing to say back and think all about that endlessly. A lot of this happens like when people go to bed at night, they ruminate and they try to have the perfect planning for every possible option, or they try to analyze something to death as if they're going to come up with something that's gonna make the doubts go away. Mm. And that, that is a rumination is a compulsion. Most of this book is about compulsion. The blue book, Overcoming Unwanted Thought, Intrusive Thoughts, is about obsession. It's about the intrusion of a thought that just comes out of nowhere that scares you. And the green book, Needing to Know for Sure, is about compulsion. It's a compulsion and obsession are related to each other and they're defined by each other. They're not defined by the content, nothing to do with what they're about. It's about how they interact with each other. So when you're worrying, there are two parts to worrying. There's the what if part of worrying that makes your anxiety go up and that's obsession. And there's the everything that you try to do in your head to answer the question And that's the compulsion. Mm -hmm. Rumination is, in fact, compulsion because rumination is an attempt that works briefly to bring the anxiety down that was created by the obsession. It works temporarily, and then it reinforces the obsession with something called negative reinforcement, which we explain in the book. So it makes the circle go round. So the ruminations are, in fact, probably the most common form of compulsion. But most people who ruminate have no idea that they're not helping themselves. They keep thinking that if they just think about it a little longer, they'll come up with something. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I think the rumination part is is kind of sticky, uh, you know, with like the reassurance coupon book, you know, if you, you know, you get reassurance five times a week or five times a month. And if you, you know, by accident, you know, ask your partner for some reassurance or check the look on their face when you mentioned whether or not the stove was off, you know, you have to surrender one of those coupons. But when, when you are the one compulsing, when you are the one 
keeping yourself in the reassurance trap or, or the loop, it it strikes me as a, as a bit more difficult to... It is difficult because those attempts to to make yourself feel better that first of all they do work briefly and they're they're they feel automatic mm-hmm. they feel like you can't stop them because you're so used to it you know if you if you have a thought i'm ugly and then you say no that's silly you're not ugly um, that happens absolutely automatically and so it's very hard to intervene at that point The important thing is to understand what's going on in your mind in the relationship between your thoughts, the the ones that make your anxiety go up and the ones that temporarily make your anxiety go down. Because if you notice that you've done something like that, like you've accidentally reassured yourself, then the solution is that you then deliberately and mindfully bring back the doubt. So so you're going, O, obsession, C, compulsion, O, obsession, C, compulsion. Then you realize what you're doing. Then you deliberately do O and stop. Hmm. So you always end in an O. Yeah, I've never, that's that's really cool. Uh, yeah, I, I, I like that idea. So that's your way of doing these, like, what is it, in vivo exposures um, where you give yourself the scary thought, and then really try not to um, ruminate on it or or offer false comfort. Right, right. You you and you have to be willing to experience the discomfort that comes. But what people don't realize, because the discomfort seems so urgent and important, it it feels like it'll never go away, and you have to be willing for it to never go away. But what happens is. If you disentangle yourself from the content of the thought, and you're very clear that it's a thought, then it subsides by itself if you don't do anything. So even just a very simple thing to, and the the book talks a lot about disentangling from the content. What you want to do is you want to say something like, instead of, um, I screwed up, you, you, you say, okay, I'm having the thought that mm-hmm. I screwed up. And that helps you to just stand back and go, oh, there's one of those. I'm not going to answer that. I'm not going to get trapped by that. I'm going to just let that sit there. I'm having the thought that I screwed up which is a very different thing from I screwed up because you, you, you get to be able to kind of step back from it and take a look and go, Oh, this process is going to suck me down into that rabbit hole. If I don't notice what's happening and stand back and float past. So that's where we're talking about not being bullied by those thoughts. Yeah. And I imagine, and I think it's, true in my case where it's easier to to start doing this work with the not the stickiest thoughts you know not the most fearful or catastrophic sort of thoughts but the smaller stuff in your life to maybe build that muscle up so that you know because if you if you're in a full-blown crisis you know and it's just rumination city and it's 
the font size is like a hundred and it's just all day, every day, fully identified. I think it, it would, it might be hard. Obviously this work is not meant to be easy, but it's, it's hard at that point to, to, to try to do, I think what you're suggesting, except, you know, it isn't hard to say I am having the thought that, but um, I guess maybe it's a little easier to get started with the smaller stuff. Yes, it's easier to get started with the smaller stuff, but you know, if something is bombarding you all day, every day, you're obviously doing something that's maintaining it being bombarding you. And most of the time, it's because you're treating these thoughts as if they're important. Mm. And you're, you're making one of those mistakes um, you know, just because something crosses your mind doesn't make it a prediction, doesn't make it important, doesn't make it serious, doesn't make it urgent. Things cross our minds all the time. And if you seize on the content of the doubt and then you struggle with it, then you're going to end up all day, every day with it. So, yes, I understand what you're saying about start little basically as a demonstration that this process that we're talking about, while it's, it's, it's not easy to do, but it's actually very simple. And if you, get, if you get the principle, it can be applied to any thought because thought that it, thoughts are thoughts. You know, an asteroid is coming to get us tomorrow is a thought. You know, I have covert cancer, even though I have no symptoms, is a thought. And being clear what is a thought and what isn't a thought um, is incredibly important. And that's that's why the two books go together. So you've got to read the first book, too. Yes, yes, <laughs> I, I definitely could. That's full of all these myths that make it seem like there's something that must be struggled with. Here's Here's another metaphor. So you're walking down the street and there's somebody coming towards you. And as you begin to see him, you can see that he's kind of looking like a really kind of sketchy character. He's wearing an old dirty raincoat and he's kind of limping a little bit and he hasn't shaved and he just looks kind of scary. And as you cross paths, he says something. He says to you something horrible and disgusting. What's the best thing to do? Mm, just keep going. Exactly. But what you do when your OCD tells you something horrible and disgusting is you turn around and you say, what did you say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which gets you involved in a fight. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's hard. I And maybe I'm just playing the tiniest um, violin here for myself or other OCD sufferers, but it's hard to treat the thoughts like this pirate you described mm -hmm. crossing you on the sidewalk. Like, you know, it, but, but you're right. Of course, like you, you shouldn't be yelling at your mind. Like, Oh, I can't believe you said that. What does this mean? Are we horrible? But you know, if you go your whole life thinking that your thoughts are you, they're you, they're your identity, and that they're the gospel or the truth. Like it's, it's so easy to know that the pirate who hasn't shaved and he's limping, you know, we shouldn't pay attention to him, but yeah. you know, it, it's, but, it's. But that you just said one of the most important myths that there is that we have to bust and that 
and that is that your thoughts are you. That's, that's entirely wrong. Yeah, I completely agree. When I first heard that a few years ago, it changed, it blew my mind. I didn't under, like, I couldn't believe why everyone in, in elementary school wasn't taught that. <laughs> well, you know, let's say, let's say you're worried about yourself and, um, and then you, you're, you're driving along in the car and your foot, you come to stoplight and your, your foot's on the brake and right in front of the car, walking across the street, there's a little old lady, really, you know, really slow. And she's like an inch and a half from your bumper. And the thought crosses your mind, you know, if I let up on the brake, I'll kill her. Now, a lot of people have had exactly that same thought. But if you're worried about yourself, you might say, uh-oh, what is that thought doing in my head? What's wrong with me? Am I homicidal? Do I have urges that I don't know about? This is really terrible. Why, where did that thought come from? You shouldn't think that thought. And immediately you push down on the brake. And then your leg starts to shake because you're pushing so hard and you're freaking out. And then you think you had some kind of an incident. Let me tell you that most people who would have that little old lady walking across would have that thought. But some people get scared of their thoughts and other people know they're silly. Like the one where you're standing on a, on a subway platform and you know there, there isn't anybody who hasn't had the thought of either jumping in or pushing someone else in. But some people don't even remember that they thought that because they just, they don't care what's in their mind and other people are watching and worried about their minds and so they seize on it. What's wrong with me? Why did I think that? And then that is what makes it get stuck. Yeah. And then it becomes, how can I know for sure that I won't do it? Yeah. And then it's go see a doctor and make sure that you're not sick or that, or that there's some other, you know, some other reason that is happening, why that thought occurred to you. And then maybe you can look at your childhood or, or, you know, you did have that schizophrenic uncle, you know, and then you could just go on and on and on worrying about something that most people have thought. Yeah. It's really, it's such an interesting, you know, situation or, you know, experience we have of, of being alive and having a mind and having one that's like others and sometimes not like others. I wonder, and, you know, this is sort of outside of the scope of the book because we're not focused on the why, but you know, why is it sticky in one person's head? Why is some person like really afraid? Oh my God, am I suicidal? Do I actually want to jump on a train? Like this is terrible. And the other person dismisses it. Yeah. Well, those are biological factors. Um, stickiness of the mind is a bio, it's a, it's a nice phrase because it really does describe it, but it's actually a biological phenomenon. It's the way your brain works and your brain circuitry works. This is genetic. It runs in families. If you have a, a relative with this kind of stickiness, then you're born with a predisposition with this kind of stickiness. It's all over the world. Stickiness goes up and down according to all kinds of other biological factors too. For example, the day after you drink alcohol, you'll be stickier. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if you're hungry or if you're angry or if you're exhausted, your mind gets stickier. Those are all biological things. So um, if you've been stressed out, it doesn't matter about what, for some period of time, if you've got a predisposition to stickiness instead of migraines, you'll get stickiness. If you have a predisposition to, um, you know, for your trick knee to start going out, then you'll be stumbling and your trick knee will go out. Any kind of stress doesn't have to even be meaningful stress. It can just be you're mad at your neighbor. Anything. It's not, it, 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 all it does is that it brings out whatever your body's tendency to respond is. And if your predisposition is to stickiness, that's what happens. So something I'm curious about. So there's this, there's, it's illustrated in the book, and we've already talked about this negative feedback loop where, you know, a thought arrives and the person responds in a, in a worried sort of way and does some kind of paradoxical or compulsive behavior like you know ruminating or maybe asking a friend or getting on dr google or something Mm -hmm. like that and Mm -hmm. that that process itself makes it more likely that the next time a, a worrisome thought occurs it'll play out in the same way right where you'll compulse again um so there's this causal relationship Yes, it's not only that it makes it more likely that the same pattern will occur, it actually makes it more likely that the thought will occur. Hmm. It increases the tendency to doubt. Okay, so it's, it's somewhere in the brain, it's, I mean, we have to be metaphorical, right? But somewhere in the brain, it's saying this thought is important, or like figuring mm-hmm. it out is important, or this is uh, related to our survival, or something like that. So the right. thought becomes more salient in that way. Right. Right. Um, negative reinforcement is the, is the method by which this works. Negative reinforce, re- reinforcement sounds like punishment, but it isn't. You know, punishment is, you know, if I move my arm and you hit me, then I'm less likely to move my arm, right? And uh, reward or positive reinforcement is if I... Uh, if I move my arm and you give me a, a bushel of popcorn, I'm more likely to move my arm. So that's reward and punishment. Negative reinforcement is also reinforcement. So it goes like this. If I move my arm and my headache goes away, I'm going to be waving my arms around a lot. Mm. Right. So negative refers to when the action is taken um, less of the thing that was there before is there right. now. When it or... removes discomfort. Mm-hmm. And that's how, that's how compulsion works. It removes discomfort temporarily. And that reinforces whatever went right before, which was the thought or the doubt or, or the whoosh from your nervous system. Yeah. I, on page eighty, you, I mean, you coined some good phrases. You you told you told me earlier in the conversation that you guys came up with co compulsing, and that's a a great and useful term. And on page eighty eight, I found decidophobia, which I'd never heard before, which I think is awesome. I think I I think I stole that from somewhere, but I'm not sure where I stole it from. Okay. Uh, 
that's actually the subject of the next book because the book is anticipatory anxiety and chronic indecisiveness. Well, that's going on the list. And, you know, I hope maybe I can have you again, you know, after I read that one. <laughs> about a year from now, probably. <laughs> okay. Can you talk about uh, just, you know, uh, briefly what anticipatory anxiety is? Okay. Um, anticipatory anxiety is the anxiety you feel before you actually enter the situation that you're scared of. So if, let's say, you have a fear of flying, then you can assume you're going to be scared on the plane. But it, the anticipatory anxiety starts from the moment you realize that you might have to go on a plane sometime next year. So it's the ahead of time worrying about whether or not it's going to be um, a tolerable or intolerable situation that you're going to have to enter. So that is uh, common in OCD and is common in phobias, and it's common in um, people who um, uh, get involved with substance use to try and keep themselves from being uncomfortable in social mm -hmm. situations. It's, a it's very, very common, and it's in anticipation of worrying about getting ahead of yourself. And of course, if you're anxious now, when you may or may not possibly have to fly next November, then what you say to yourself is, if I'm that anxious about flying now, I, by the, I, there's no way I could actually do it. But the problem is that people assume that their anticipatory anxiety is a warning or a signal or a prediction and actually has nothing to do with how it's really going to go. You can be extremely scared of giving a talk and then get up and give a great talk, or you can be extremely scared of giving a talk and get up and give a bad talk. It really doesn't tell you anything at all about how things are really going to go. But it's a product of our imagination. And it also sometimes is a product of our memories because we may have had anxiety in a situation before and we kind of nail in the expectation that it's going to happen again. Mm -hmm. Right. So in, in a basic non sort of disordered sense, it's adaptive, right? If I have a memory of, you know, every Monday I go and I play with snakes and sometimes they bite me, you know, in that case, if I can broadcast my memory of the snakes biting me into the future to next Monday, it's, it's okay to honor the possibility that my worry is well-founded, but in people for whom um, this is a condition, this sort of uh, terrible kind of time travel where they move forward into the future to the plane ride they'll take next November and assume it'll be very scary, either based on past experience or not based on any experience, mm -hmm. just sort of, uh, like you said, the imagination, it's... It's, no, it's not only like bad in the present because you're making yourself miserable, but it also just might not come out the way you expect it to. Right. And, and what we say is that anticipatory anxiety is the driver of avoidance. And of course, avoidance is the single most unhelpful thing you can do if you're afraid. And what happens is you have anticipatory anxiety, then your worried voice is going, oh, no, oh, no, I can't do it. And your false comfort will come in and suggest avoiding it. 
And that's how phobia develops. That's what happens when people have panic attacks and then they end up stuck in the house um, because avoided. It's the it's the third level. So you can be you can have um, the first level of fear, which is I'm afraid of a bee, and the second level of fear is what if I have a panic attack when I see a bee and have uh, you know, and cause myself a heart attack and die. And the third level is I had better not set up myself for going camping next year because what if I see a bee and I have a panic attack and I give myself a heart attack and I die? Hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, so the different levels describe kind of how pernicious or like how how big they're affecting or about to affect your life? Is that the distinction between the levels? Well, the third level is the level which pushes you to avoid ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And that, and then avoidance, of course, gives you no chance to learn anything. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, you never get to see yourself in that situation, perhaps right. dealing with the bees in a, right. you know. Or finding out that a panic attack can't kill you, which it can't. Right. Right. Something I really liked that you mentioned a lot in the book is, well, first of all, there's the DEF acronym, which I think is, would be good to address. But then there's, there's this thing that's highlighted a lot in the book, and it's this sense of urgency that you feel if you have this kind of relationship to your mind of anxiety um, and the feeling that there's just something wrong when, you know, all intents and purposes, you're, you're fine, you're sitting on the couch, you know, you've got food in your belly and you know, a warm bed to sleep in. And yet there's this just vague or general sense that there's like a darkness somewhere that we kind of need to be on watch for. Yes. A anxious people confuse distress with danger. And so if you feel distressed, you feel like you are in danger. And of course, if you're in danger, then it's urgent to get out of danger. But if you're able to tolerate discomfort or distress, then you don't you're not you are able to see that these are thoughts feelings imagination whatever they are you're not actually in danger yeah i don't know if you support this assertion but it seems to me at least in the modern day you know if you don't spend a lot of time you know running around with scissors that so much of you know anticipatory anxiety or anxiety in general is is just completely uh, like useless and misplaced. I, I don't know if that feels accurate or, or, or what you would say about that. I, I think I agree with you. I think you're referring to what you, you sort of obliquely referred to earlier, which is that in, in the old days, we were running away from saber-toothed tigers and we had to do a lot of stuff to stay out of danger. Now the dangers that we are responding to with anxiety are things like feelings, we don't want to be embarrassed or we don't want to, you know, they're not actually danger, they're feelings. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of it is in fact useless. I agree with you. We like the acronym DEF partly because we came up with the whole idea of a Ulysses contract. And if you know the story of Ulysses. Mm, yeah, this is good. He tied himself to the mast and then he basically said to his crew, when we go by the, the sirens that are going to be calling out, 
to uh, with beautiful music that that what happens is everybody goes towards the music and crashes into the rocks. So I really want to hear the music. So what I'd like you to do is put wax in your ears and I'm going to tie myself to the mask. And no matter what I say or do, no matter if I tell you to drive towards the, the, the music, you must ignore me. So you must be deaf to my calls for reassurance or help or, or orders or anything. You must be deaf, put wax in your ears, and, and, they, and they, they, he got to hear the music, and they didn't crash into the rocks. So deaf comes from that, and deaf is, three, is four letters, D-E-A-F. D is, uh, is it distinguish? I think it's distinguish. Yeah. Uh, between a real emergency and a feeling of distress or discomfort. If you're in distress and discomfort land, um, then that's your D. And E is embrace. Embrace the feeling of being uncertain. Embrace your doubts. A is avoid avoidance. Um, which is avoid reassurance. And um, F is float. And float is a term that comes from a, somebody named Claire Weeks, who was a family Australian family practitioner who wrote amazing books in the 60s that predated, um, predated uh, a lot of the work that's done in OCD and anxiety disorders brilliantly in this very simple grandmothery type language. And Claire Weeks was my teacher. Mm -hmm. And um, she used the term float in, in um, acceptance and commitment therapy act. They use the words defuse. Um, what I like to use is the word disentangle, but it means let the stuff go by and don't get involved. Don't start analyzing, working on, dealing with, rise above and let it go by and then proceed with whatever's next. Float, float is, is a, an incredibly important concept. Um, let me see if I can give an example of float. Uh, let's say you've got a ball in the pool and you're trying to swim laps. And let's say you, you, you keep trying to grab the ball and push it down and send it away and, and um, you're all involved with that ball. But what if you were just to let it float around the pool? You would find that as you swim your laps, it kind of moves aside. And in fact, you don't really even have to pay attention to it. It'll, it'll just do its thing, bobbing around. But you don't have to waste your energy even dealing with it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some other good examples here. Smelly socks, uh, which is a nice one, and the scary bully, which mm -hmm. is the, the example that you mentioned before. Um, and I think I know the answer to this question, but what if the ball just keeps coming back and keeps hitting you in the head? I guess you would say that it, it can't be doing it alone. You must be somewhere there involved, you know, making the negative feedback loop, uh, giving it, it, it energy like these balls. No, the ball could hit you, but but it's it, it's not dangerous. It's just annoying. Mm -hmm. And there are times when you're just so sticky um, that it takes a long time for 
for the, uh, the ball or the thought or the doubts to subside. But if they're not important, if they're not dangerous, if they don't mean anything, if they don't make you ashamed of yourself, then okay, fine. And that's the point. And this is actually a phrase from Claire Weeks, is that recovery is not when the symptoms no longer happen. It's when they no longer matter. And when they no longer matter, then you don't get involved with them. You don't dread them. They, they just take a back seat. And then eventually, because they're not getting any attention, they start fading away. But it's on their timetable. But it doesn't yeah. matter because it doesn't matter. Yeah. There's a great quote in here. I think you referred to it as an adage, but I'd never heard it before. And it's, I think it's when you're going through hell, keep on going. <laughs> <laughs> that was Marty's phrase. I don't know where he got it, but it's, it's good. Yeah. I have another question about search and destroy and how important you think it is because I, I can, you know, well, I guess it maybe, maybe importance is in the eye of the, of the patient or the client. Cause I can imagine at least in my own case of getting rid of a lot of the symptoms of, you know, perfectionism and OCD and assurance seeking and still, you know, moment to moment or day to day, you know, living with a little bit of rumination or living with a little bit of covert um, assurance seeking or, or living with some um, outward compulsions that don't take up a lot of time in my life. And obviously in a perfect world, it'd be great if they were all gone. But the search and destroy mission encourages, I think, maybe not absolute because that would get us in some perfectionistic trap, but right. does encourage us to kind of clean, you know, even the corners of these things. So how important do you think that is? It's, it's important because first of all, so much of reassurance seeking is really subtle. And so it's very easy to be tripping yourself up and not even realizing it, which is why we ask you to pay attention to the little things. Um, it's kind of like this um, agoraphobic patient I had years ago who said, um, who was housebound and what she said to me was, I want to stop treatment because my life is wonderful. I can leave the house anytime I want. I can go to the store. I can go anywhere I want. I can drive. I, my life is normal. The only thing I can't do is leave Maryland, and I have no desire to leave Maryland. Now, that's actually a mistake because what she was saying is, if I leave Maryland and I have a panic attack, I'll fall apart. So she was basically settling for almost better. But what she was saying to herself was, okay, now I'm pretty sure that if I go to the store, I won't have a panic attack. I'm pretty sure that if I drive on the highway, I won't have a panic attack. I'm pretty sure that I can be safely all over the place and not have a panic attack. I've expanded my boundaries. But what she hadn't done is change her relationship to her fear of having a panic attack. She mm. was just saying it's unlikely. So the bottom line with the work that we're doing is that it's a change in your relationship with your mind. And if you're still doing a few little things that don't bother you much or that don't get in your way much, but they're still ways of trying to get rid of stuff that you're feeling, 
then you haven't bought the full surrender. You haven't bought the full idea that it's okay to be anxious or it's okay to have these sorts of thoughts or that it doesn't take away anything from you um, to, to be as you are. And so search and destroy is really about reinforcing that surrender. You know, the thing is that it's, again, the whole book, all self-help books, except ours that I can see, are about techniques. And this is not a technique. It's, it's, a, it's an attitude shift. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not true, all self-help books. There are, there are people working, Reed Wilson and people are working through the ACT, the ACT framework, thank you, um, and Reed Wilson and a few other folks that I know well are also working in this same framework. But what's really important is that it not be applied as a technique. All that we're doing is giving you ways to access an attitude shift. I mean, it's it's really powerful. It's 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 an incredible idea, and obviously, it's got a long track record of success. I feel like, in some ways, the sort of transcendence of anxiety as being okay with it, it's it's kind of counter to like our roots is like naturally selected evolved people, right? Like anxiety is the emotion of go out and fix things, right? This is a problem. This is urgency. So you're really, you know, kind of embrace, you're becoming this kind of Buddha like um, entity. If you can really just stare anxiety in the face and be like, Mm -hmm. I know you evolved to make me do things. And yet, you know, here I am like transcending that. Right. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with productive reassurance. There's nothing wrong with good information once from a credible source. There's nothing wrong with getting advice that's useful and leads to an action plan. This is when anxiety turns in on you and then you're struggling with your own mind. Well, it's it's amazing stuff. And, you know, a lot of the lessons in here are familiar to me, but at least in my own case, I feel like I have to keep relearning, you know, these ideas. Well, I love how open you are to exploring all of this. And um, I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Winston. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you and the book. I look forward to the other things that you are writing. And and where can people find you uh, online or, or elsewhere? Do you want to talk about that? Um, if you, well, um, if you want the books, just go to Amazon, put my name in and you'll, you'll, what will pop up is the, the blue one, overcoming unwanted interests of thoughts. And then the green one needing to know for sure. There's also a book for therapists, which is called what every therapist needs to know about anxiety disorders, which is, um, which is actually not a self-help book. It's a book for therapists, although a lot of people have read it as well. If you want to see um, um, a webinar, you can go to um, the Anxiety Disorders Association, ADAA.org, and there's a webinar um, for the general public um, with Marty and me together. We have a blog on psychologytoday.com called Living with a Sticky Mind, and there I think there are probably about a dozen entries or so. So we're all over the place. Yeah, and your website, right? You have a where you practice. Right. right. Marty has a website called Dr. Is it Dr. Martin Seif? I think so. 
And mine is anxietyandstress.com. Well, again, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate all the wisdom and and all that you're doing for the community. And it was really, you know, it was really just great reading the book. I saw a lot of myself in there and I, and I appreciate. um, Well, thank you very much for having me. And it's been a good conversation.